Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, for some of you, I've yet to meet you because we've been doing this distance thing for a little while. So my name's Micah. I'm one of the pastors here at Summerside. And we are working our way through a brand new series that we're calling Opportunity Knocks. And today, we want to talk about how we've got an opportunity to change how we think about church. Uh, we might have developed some habits uh, about what we expect and, and what we perceive. But this whole situation with COVID-19, it's giving us a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to change that. At least, uh, I hope it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. There's been some talk that it might be a, a resurgence thing. And if anyone is taking votes, I vote no, that this would be the only time that we go through it. But just because some of us are finding this a little bit long and we don't really want to be in this place anymore, it doesn't mean that there aren't some things that we can learn during this time. And I really do think that in this season where we are forced to do things differently, we can dust off our mindsets and refocus again on what we think about a lot of variety of topics. But today, I want to ask the question, what makes a church a church? To get there, though, I want to provide a little bit of scriptural context. If you've got your Bibles, you might want to turn to Acts chapter 7. And in Acts chapter 7, we drop in in the midst of a legal proceeding. But there's a little bit of context, a little bit of background that you need to know for this to make sense. Because some of the defenses that our hero Stephen makes, if, if you don't know what's going on, it just sounds weird. Centuries, if not millennia before, God chose to enter into a relationship with his chosen people, the children of Abraham. And over generations, they were God's chosen people. And after he led them out of Egypt, he gave them very specific directions on how to build a, a place, a symbol that God was with them and in their presence, in their midst. And these directions were how to build a, a thing called a tabernacle. Now, we church folk, we've got this habit of assigning really fancy terms to really simple con uh, concepts. I don't really know why, but we don't like having small words. But honestly, the word tabernacle, it just means tent. And this tent was meant to be set up in the midst of the people. And wherever it went, wherever God went, the people would go. And where the people would go, the tent would go with them. And it was the symbol of God being present with them. Well, eventually God led them into the promised land and a whole lot of other stories happened. But once they got settled down and God blessed the nation, the king at the time decided that it was, it was time to build God a temple. Enough of this tent thing. We, we want to make a big building. And he started the process, but because he had been such a man of war, God actually said, it's going to be your son that does it. And King Solomon, even today, if you do the conversion of currencies and all that kind of thing, he was one of the wealthiest people that ever lived. And he dedicated a massive amount of resources to building this magnificent temple. 
It was gorgeous. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. And the people began to orientate their worship of God around this edifice, this place. And they'd have to come from the the countryside and and join together at at this place. They'd gather from all the outskirts of their different uh, communities and come together. And as you look at the Psalms, the songs from that time, as you look at the scriptures from that time, you see the centrality of the temple building. Over time, people drifted away from their commitment to follow God. And eventually, God's blessing was lifted and a nation came in and destroyed the temple. Dragged away the, the brightest and the best. If you look at the scriptures from even then, yes, there's this lament for how they walked away from God, but even more, there's this heartbreak about the loss of the temple. Well, time marches on, and a little while before Jesus shows up, under Roman occupation, one of the Roman governors, a man by, that we know as King Herod, he built a second temple. And it was nowhere near as glorious as the first, but it was still a magnificent building. In fact, the other temples, year, a couple of years ago, I got to go visit a temple site in Lebanon to the Roman god Jupiter. At least I think it's Jupiter. I always get my Greek and Roman gods mixed up. But looking back on the records, you can see this moment where they realized that this little Judean temple out in backwater Jerusalem, it was a nicer temple than the, the one they had here. And all this money got invested to renovate and expand this temple. It was still a, even though it was a shadow of what formerly was, it was still a glorious place. And as you look at the scriptures from around the New Testament, you see how central the building has become again. One of the things that Jesus taught was that it wasn't about the building. It wasn't about empty religious ceremonies happening in a specific place. One of the things that Jesus taught was that actually God wants our hearts to be in relationship. And he actually pointed out the worthlessness of the temple. And it's one of the things that really upset the religious leaders. And some people would contend it was actually his disregard for a building that spurred them on, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, to advocate for Christ's crucifixion. Well, as we know, killing Jesus didn't exactly end the story. And after his resurrection, his followers became even more emboldened to follow him. And they proclaimed the good news that God loves you and wants to be in relationship with you far and wide. And the temple officials, they started beating down on the idea that we need to end these guys. And that's where we tune in because they've seized a man by the name of Stephen and brought him in and are accusing him of not holding up to temple traditions and all kinds of other sins in their mind. And we tune in on his defense, and and Stephen gives a, a lot more robust explanation, reminding them of all of their history. And then, in verse 44, he says this, Our ancestors had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as God, who spoke to Moses, ordered him to make it according to the design he had seen. 
our ancestors received possession of it and brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our ancestors until the time of David. He found favor with God and asked that he could build a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built for the house, sorry, but Solomon built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. And as you go on, Stephen reminds him, like, how could you possibly think that the God who made the mountains, you can make a, a home for him out of what you drag from the mountains? That the God who created the forest, you can make a home for him out of a few trees. And Stephen reminds them again that it's not about the place. It's not about the building. It's not about our traditions and our ceremonies. It's about your heart. And that didn't go over well with the Pharisees. They actually wound up killing him. And Stephen becomes recorded as the first martyr, the first one to die for the name of Jesus. With all that being said, with the, the words of Stephen ringing in our ears in this day and age where so many of our churches have their own place, let me ask this question again. What makes a church a church? Or to put it a different way, because, I mean, we're all pre-primed now, right? If I was to ask you, is a, is a church made up of the building? We, we're pre-primed for the answer. No. If we were gathered here in our sanctuary, and I said from the platform, hey, is the church this room? You would say no. But let's be honest. Being a little bit distant for this length of time, we kind of missed the place. If I was to ask you, is the church made up, is it defined by the music that we use to worship God? We would know that the answer is no. But I've been around long enough to know that we get pretty attached to our musical styles. If we asked each other, is a church defined by the fact we take up an offering? I'd hope the answer is no, because if you were here last summer, you'd know that we had a service where I totally forgot to. The church isn't defined by these things. And even though we're pre-primed to give an answer, I want to come at the question a different way. I want to ask it this way. When would Summerside Baptist Church stop being SBC. If we stopped having the potlucks, would we stop being a church? We might stop being Baptist, but I don't think we'd stop being a church. If we met in the gym or the park or somehow we gathered in the lobby, would that make us less of a church? And you know the answer is no. If we change the musical style or our preferences, if we... Uh, change the order of service, if, if I change my preaching style, would that make us not a church? Would we no longer be SBC? I might have preferences. I might not want to gather in the park in the rain, and I really don't want to worship God to country music. But those things don't define a church. That's not what makes us SBC. That's not what causes us to be followers of Christ. If that's not what makes a church, what does? There's a, a lot of things in the Bible 
that highlight what defines a church. But for this morning, and because my brain is limited, I think of three things. Three things that help define what a church is. And the first one is this. It's a place where we call each other forward. The church is a group of people being renovated by the Holy Spirit. And we will always be under renovation. He's always doing work on us. And for me, I see this spurring on in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. And let us take thought of how to spur one another on to love and good works. This idea that, yes, the Holy Spirit is always working on us, and we need to be reminded to keep moving forward, to not get stagnant, to not think we've arrived in our spiritual growth and development, but to be always looking for how God is moving us along and to encourage each other in that. I need your encouragement to keep growing. Some of you need encouragement from your friends to keep growing. And the church is a group of people who call each other to continuously submit to the work of the Holy Spirit, the renovation of the Holy Spirit. It's not lost on me that the very next verse here, Hebrews 10.25, says, And do not give up meeting together. I can't help but think of that in this context where we're meeting through screens like this. And don't get me wrong, this is better than nothing. But it's still like off-brand peanut butter. It's just not right. There's something about being in each other's presence, meeting together, praying for each other and encouraging each other that I am really looking forward to when we can get back together. A church is also defined by the way that we set about taking care of each other. We do more than just gather and sing. In Acts chapter 2, where a lot of people look for their inspiration of what the church is supposed to be like, it, it reads this way. And they began selling their property and possessions and distributing the proceeds to everyone as anyone had need. Every day they continued to gather together by common consent in the temple courts, breaking bread from house to house, sharing their food with glad and humble hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number every day those who were being saved. As a fellowship of Christ, we understand that every individual is valuable to Christ. That every individual is somebody that Jesus died to save. And as a people, we've got this simple mantra that goes, if they are important to him, they're important to us. A church is a group of people who understand that God has called them to take care of other people. It's not just about us. And finally, and probably most importantly, a church is a group of people who point to Jesus. This is what it's all about. The message of Jesus Christ, the life, the teachings, the death, the resurrection, it is the single most compelling event in all of history. This is what we gather around, that God loved you so much that he came and he made a difference in all of history for your soul and mine and those around us. And for all of time, we will be a church that points to Jesus. 
It's interesting, the day that Stephen was killed, there's a, a man standing nearby giving his approval to it. Amongst the Jews, he went by the name Saul. Amongst the Greeks, he used the word name Paul. And Paul was inspired to keep the purity of the temple. And after Stephen's death, after Stephen's murder, he went about carrying that effort on until Jesus got a hold of him and completely upended his life. And he spent the, the rest of his life telling people both how wrong he was and how wonderful Jesus is. And he puts it this way when he's writing to a church that got off the rails a little bit. He, he phrases it like this. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come with superior eloquence or wisdom as I proclaimed the testimony of God. For I decided to be concerned about nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We are a group of people who are compelled by the message of Jesus Christ. And we will always point others towards him. So that's my three ideas of what makes a church. In reverse order of importance, maybe. We are a group of people who call each other on. We're a group of people who take care of others. And we're a group of people who will always point to Jesus. It's at this point in the message that I kind of confess that I've got a single sentence that boils all this down for me. I used all these words to say all of that, and I think I can summarize it in one sentence. And it's simply this. We are people frantically frantically stumbling towards Jesus. We know that we're going to stumble and fall. We know that we're not going to get it right. We know that we're going to be off base sometimes. But we always want to be, by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, getting back up on our feet and running hard towards Jesus, bringing everyone who will come along. All the other stuff of church, the speakers and the chairs, the sound system and the lights, the windows and the decorations. They're nice to have. But when it comes right down to it, we're people frantically stumbling towards Jesus together. Let's pray. God, we've got a simple, simple request. that you would keep us running hard towards you and that you'd give us the chance to see others join the run as well. Lord, turn us, keep renovating us into people who chase you, we pray. In your name, amen.